Well, morning, everyone. I'm Gareth from the Associate Minister here. It's great to be with you. And it was also really good to be at the, the, not the cathedral, but at All Saints West Ham yesterday, seeing our curates, Abby and Tom, and Gary at uh, Barkingside being priested. So I don't know, why don't we just give them a round of applause? It's for... <laughs> Abby will be leading communion for the first time later on, so that's, that's really good news. But at the moment, we're in a, in a series called Restoration, where we're focusing on how God restores his people. And after being sent away into exile, what happens next in the history of Israel? And if you were here last week, you would have heard Sam talking about how opposition arose uh, towards the rebuilding of the temple that we read about in Ezra chapter 4. And some of the Samaritans who were living there, they started kicking off about the rebuilding of the temple. And they wrote some really slanderous letters to the king of, of, of Persia at that time. And, and that was, he ordered that the, the rebuilding work stop. And we know, and we thought about this last week, how the people of God will often face opposition. We see that in the Bible, we see that in our lives today. But when you read the Acts of the Apostles, you see the apostles who, they, they face all kinds of persecution. They get beaten, they, they get imprisoned. In fact, the Apostle Paul, they tried to stone him to death, and he just got up, took a paracetamol, and carried on. You know, opposition doesn't mean that we should stop doing the thing that God has called us to do. In fact, if anything, I would say we should try even harder. But it has to be said that the returning exiles who are returning back to Judah, they do give in rather too easily. Instead of campaigning and fighting to rebuild the temple, they just kind of give up. And this defeatism leads to 15 years of just living in domestic comfort, whilst the temple of God just kind of just stayed there in, in, a, in a real mess and, and in ruins. And that's where the prophet Haggai comes in and enters the scene. So this morning we're thinking about how God encourages his people and we see the prophet Haggai, he comes in and he, and he speaks to Zerubbabel, who's the, the governor of Judah at that time, and also to Joshua, the high priest. And he brings a word to Israel at that time, and it's a word of rebuke, but also of encouragement. And so this morning, I just want to think mainly about the encouragement, but firstly, we're going to look at the rebuke that, that God gives to his people through Haggai. And if you've got your Bibles open, in chapter 1, we see in verses 3 and 4, Haggai says... This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? And Haggai is challenging the people of God saying God did not free you and liberate you. And, and ransom you out of captivity for you to come back to the land and just spend all your time, spend 15 years building up your name at the expense of his. They'd neglected God, they'd neglected spiritual things for material comforts, living in, in luxury, living in panelled houses, which is significant because in Israel it's mainly white sandstone. So the houses would have been made out of this, this white rock. To panel the inside of your house meant traveling all the way to the bordering countries, which were, which were miles away, going to places like Phoenicia and Lebanon to get all this fine wood, to bring that back into their houses, to panel the insides of their houses. You can imagine the amount of time and money and effort that went into doing that. 
And God is saying to them, so you say that it's not the right time to rebuild my house, but I've seen the inside of your houses. I know you've been busy. I'm not in a good way. You know, it's like the equivalent of just spending 15 years going to Ikea, you know, just back and forth, just making your house look a certain way. And God's saying, you've been making a name for yourself. You've been, you've been more focused on making your houses look nice and, and, live, and feathering your nest in domestic bliss whilst the house of God just lays there in ruins. Now, God's not condemning wealth or even the use of time or, or even, uh, it, this isn't even a, a pop at laziness. But God is challenging them about their priorities. Get your priorities right. You know, do what's important. Why are you wasting all this time worrying about material things? You see, this defeatism to opposition had led to them just being like everybody else. And I would suggest that when we give in to worldly opposition, we just end up living like everybody else and stop being distinct and that's what happened to, to the people of Judah. They, they just found themselves just living in a worldly way like, like everybody else. And God says to them in, in verses 5 and 6, Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. But Israel had strived for years, but without any real prosperity. And God tells them why in verse 9. He says, I blew it all away because my house lies in ruins, whilst each of you is busy looking after his own house. It might sound a bit harsh, but actually I would suggest it's an act of great compassion when God doesn't allow things to go so well in order to bring his people back to him. But the Bible says in Hebrews that God disciplines those who he loves. Where God is concerned about the people who are, although they're trying to strive for prosperity, they've abandoned him and they're not doing what he's asked them to do. And so he calls them back. He calls them out of this passivity and and, and living for worldly things. And we see at the end of chapter 1, the people repent. The people come back to God, they obey God, and they start rebuilding the temple. So everything's going well. So we're picking up at the beginning of chapter 2, where we see that after repenting, after coming back to God, after starting to rebuild the temple, only a month in, something seems to have gone wrong. Something significant has happened where the people have become really deeply discouraged. And... Morale has has really fallen low. And this should have been a time for celebrating. This was the Feast of Tabernacles. This was celebrating how God had delivered them through the wilderness as part of their history. They'd also quite recently been brought out of captivity in Babylon. And they were rebuilding the temple. So you think they should be celebrating. Why is everyone so down in the dumps? Why is there such a miserable atmosphere? And in verse 3 of chapter 2, we see why that is. And we see that what's happened is, is that these, these people, they, they have a, an older generation of people who still remember what Solomon's temple looked like. So they can remember how good the temple of Solomon was, and it didn't look anything like the modest effort that, that was happening at that time. And so Haggai has to come in to encourage the people because the older generation, they're lamenting the fact that it doesn't look as good or they remember what the old temple looked like and the one they're working on now doesn't look anything like that one. 
In Ezra chapter 3, it actually talks about, it says, The old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations being laid, whilst many shouted for joy. So the people who were far away could hear a mixture of wailing and cheering, which if you've got a dark sense of humor like me, I find quite funny. Because you've kind of got one group of people crying, another group of people cheering, and it's this kind of cacophony of confused noise, which is really what was happening in the land at that time. I think there's a word about the fact that we can be walking with God, we can be obedient to him, and yet still become discouraged. And Israel were being obedient to God, but they had got discouraged. And what happened was the younger generation, they were excitedly getting to work on rebuilding the temple with energy and enthusiasm, whilst the older generation were lamenting and despairing because it looked nothing like Solomon's temple. So that, that kind of despair, that turns to bitterness, which then turns into criticism and and gossip, which spreads throughout the whole community and robbed the younger generation of their joy to the point that they just threw their tools down and stormed off in a huff and the whole nation stopped working. They were looking back so much that they neglected God's promises for the future. So this younger generation who were so excited and inspired by what God had called them to do, they got discouraged and disillusioned and they started to think that God wasn't in the rebuilding of the temple. And so we're back to square one again where no one's going to work. I was just thinking about this and I think that often we can find ourselves looking back so much in our lives that we can become deeply discouraged. I was just thinking about this myself only this week. I'm someone who has a, a tendency to get caught up in nostalgia. So I can look back and think, I miss the good times. I, I miss my hometown with my friends and all of those fun times. And I can find myself just living in the rearview mirror of life, looking back, remembering things, and yet somehow dwelling on that and becoming unhappy thinking about that. And the thing about the, the older generation, they were so fixated with what the old temple looked like that that even though it had been destroyed, it was still living on in their memories in an unhealthy way to the point that it was stopping the new thing that God wanted to do. I'm not saying that memories are a bad thing. In fact, memories are often things that we can look back and, and they're quite heartwarming. But I think there's also a danger that there's a form of nostalgia where we can just be looking back and starting to believe that life is never going to be as good again. And we start to live in this kind of depression, this discouragement sets in that we can't see the new thing that God is wanting to do. And this is where Haggai steps in. And he steps in to remind Israel of God's promises. And that's what we need more than anything else when we're discouraged, when we're thinking like life is just never going to be as good. For a start, that's a lie. It's not actually true. God has got amazing things for all of us. But we can become discouraged. And so God has to send Haggai back. And in verses 5 and 6, they're deeply powerful because God is jogging their memories back. And and there are at least three really significant moments in Israel's history that God reminds them of. Firstly, he reminds them of the covenant he made when they came through Egypt through the Red Sea. The biggest, most significant moment in their history. He reminds them of that. Secondly, the phrase, be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak. That would have triggered memories back of God telling Joshua to be strong and courageous at the point that Israel were going to go and take the promised land. And thirdly, it's the same wording when King David commissioned his son Solomon to build the temple. We read about that in 1 Chronicles where it says... 
Then David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. God is reminding them that he's still the same God. I'm the same God who brought you through Egypt. I'm the same God who delivered you through and into the promised land. I'm the same God who commissioned Solomon to build the old temple. I'm still the same God that's calling you now to build this new temple. Don't forget those promises and get back to work. When discouragement sets in, we need to remember that God's still the same God. We hold on to, he's the rock of ages, he doesn't change. He's the same God who rescued you out of your sin. He's the same God who redeemed you. He's the same God who used you powerfully at that, in that moment in your life that you're looking back thinking, I remember a time when God used me really powerfully, but he hasn't used me for a while since, and I don't know if he's going to use me again. But he's the same God who used you then and who'll use you again, maybe even more powerfully. God is the same God and he's faithful. And last of all, Haggai gives the biggest encouragement in verses 6 to 9 of a dual revelation. The temple that they were building would materially stand there for about 500 years. And, and King Herod would come along in the time of the Romans, deck it out with gold, and they'd expand it, and it all looked lovely. And the disciples and the Gospels would stand there and go, oh, wow, isn't the temple really amazing and beautiful? So it was going to be a significant building. But it's not the physical building that God's interested in. Ultimately, more importantly, it's the same temple where the promised Messiah would be brought in as a baby. When Simeon worshipped him and said, my eyes have seen your salvation. It's the same temple where Jesus would go there as a boy and as a man and teach the people. Where he would turn over the, the money changers tables in that temple. And where he would be tried and put, and before going to the cross. That new temple that they're about to, to, to build and bring back, that was, that was going to be way more significant than the old temple of Solomon. Historically, in Jewish history and in world history, that temple is much more deeply significant. And even that temple got knocked down to the ground by the Romans in 70 AD. But Haggai is talking about a temple that would never be destroyed. That temple was pointing forward to Christ who himself says in John's Gospels, you can destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it back again. So God is saying to Haggai, you're, you're building into something you can't see. It may seem small and insignificant to you, and, but you have no idea what's to come. Stop fixating over the physical circumstances and trust in the promises of God who's at work through you, even though you can't see it at the time. And that new temple was going to stand as a reminder of the promise that Christ would come and die, bear our sins on the cross, bearing the full punishment for our sin and rebellion against God so that we could be forgiven and brought into relationship with God. This temple is not some dead religious relic. This points to a person and a relationship with God. So in closing, I just want to ask, you know, are we feeling discouraged this morning? And maybe there's a sense that we're living in the past. At least that's my experience that I can find myself looking back 
and thinking life was better at a different time, which isn't actually true, but you can start to have this nostalgia that makes you emotionally feel that somehow you've already lived your best life and you've left the best times behind you, but it's not true. You may feel that you're trying to be obedient to God, you're trying to walk with him, but there's a, a, a negativity and a discouragement, maybe a bitterness that snuck into our hearts. And in verse 9, we see this promise where God says to Haggai, to his people, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. God gives us peace. His promises fill our hearts full of peace and joy. Because for the Christian, the best is always yet to come. People in the world, they live their best life now because that's all they've got. And when they die, that's it. But we have a hope that doesn't disappoint. We're living for the promise of eternity. But we also live for the joy of knowing God right here, right now. Knowing his peace. Resting in his perfect promises. We sing in that song that we know that all his promises are yes and amen. And that's the difference. We trust in his promises. And we know that they're true. And we keep persevering because we know that we have got more to live for. And resting in his promises means that we have life and have it to the full. Because we're not just living for the the short term what there is in this life. But we're living for a future eternity with him as well. 